I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land wherever you are listening from today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. Since COVID-19 hit, the science of modelling has moved into the spotlight. Today we're talking about the reasons for the difference between two recently published examples from the Doherty Institute and a preprint from ANU. Professor Ivo Muller, an epidemiologist at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne who works across population, health and immunity, explains the assumptions inherent in each. At a time where modelling is so prevalent, it's important to build modelling literacy and unpack the methodology of modelling so we can all understand what they can and can't do. Today's interview is hosted by Cosmos magazine editor Gail McCullum. Thanks so much for joining us, Evo. Um, it's a it's a busy time um, to be a to be a modeler or to be someone who knows about modeling. I don't think the general population knew a lot about them until the pandemic hit, and and yet here we are. It's one of the most important ways that our lives are being ruled at the moment. Yes, it's been a very interesting, uh, uh, interesting, but also sometimes challenging uh, time to find our ways through all the different media releases and models and things that are happening at the same time. Yeah. And this week, um, obviously, the focus has been on two models which are being described as competing and giving differing information, which I think is, you know, one of the one of the interesting complexities we'd like to unpack. Can you tell us a little bit about what the aim of those models was? Um, I think that, look, the aim of the, the Doherty model is really very much to, infl- in, in the, to basically directly influence policy and inform policy. So it is trying to, in the best possible way, to chart the path, what could happen in the context of where we are in Australia as we move forward with vaccination and getting higher vaccination, what will be the consequences and what will be the, the, the public health intervention required that we can do an opening up of society in a safe and really measured kind of way. And it's been it's been very much targeted towards a gradual change and being based as closely as possible, both along policy setting, but also along the local epidemiological settings. The other model that's been making the rounds in the last two or three days is actually a very simple model that has the aim of really basically saying what would happen if we let it rip. Because the model basically says uh, nothing happens until we reach a certain level of vaccination, and then we just let it rip. Yeah, and uh, basically the magical freedom day. Yes, exactly. It's it's basically just says we have complete control until we reach a certain level of infection, and then all controls are off, and we're going back to live as we lived in uh, as we lived in February in February twenty twenty. Okay. Which, we, which none of us can hardly remember, but uh, the model pretends that that's uh, what we would do. And, and so the models model two very, very different things. And uh, we do obviously have to ask ourselves what is more closely reflecting the reality of the situation currently in Australia, as well as the different options in the situation of what might happen going forward. So tell us about so a model is a model is a, a piece of information is a is a program um, in which you can put in various um, variables 
you know, a, a number of variables. One of the ones that you've just discussed is obviously um, public health requirements around, around mask wearing and around social distancing. What are some of the other variables that go into a model like this? So, so I think the really important thing to point out is that a model is always an abstraction of reality. It's a simplification of reality. And it does not model reality. It predicts possible versions of reality. And they are simplified versions, and we like to call them in the modeling area, we like to call them scenarios. We model different scenarios. So we model basically what would happen if A and B was true, what would then happen? And so what is really important is how a model is constructed, what goes into a model, what and we'd be putting in, and then what comes out. And you know, to put it a bit crudely, in the, modeling, in the modeling community, we have the kind of word that says crap in, crap out. So if you have inputs that are not good or not realistic, then the outputs that come out are also not realistic. Okay. They're not wrong. They're mathematically correct, but, then, but they are not, they're not of that quality. So what in our case of these models, what you obviously can put in, you can make models infinitely complicated, but the more complicated you make them, the more difficult they are to run and the more, uh, more the longer time it takes to get them right because there are so many variables. So in this case, obviously we are looking at we're looking at the current situation of the epidemiology, how the virus behaves, how people behave. Really important is, is how people mingle and move with each other and, and because the virus passes from one of us to the next of us. So how we model that, how we model different public health intervention, how do we model the impact of those public health interventions on the virus transmission and on people's movements. So all these factors can go into, can go into models. So in something, in a case like today, obviously, it, as we sit here today, that model might have been run some time ago, but, you know, the, um, the, the situation, the current situation in Sydney must have an effect, as you say, it can't predict future based on our present, it can predict scenarios, but that, that, that variable of that many infections must have an effect on the, on the scenarios that come out. Uh, it does, but it's, it, it does, but it actually probably has a lesser effect that people imagine. Because really what happens is, is when we open up, like what the modeling, what the modeling predicts, like we, if we start reducing, if we start switching, making that big famous switch from basically suppressing the virus transmission to zero to controlling the virus transmission and, and suppressing it in a way that we are no longer trying to eliminate the virus from, trans from, from transmitting completely. As we make that step, the virus will make its way through the community. And the question is, how will the, the virus do that? And, you know, in a sense, what happens with Sydney is, is we will just be a bit further down that path if we open up with 1,000 cases or, or, or 800, 900 cases a day. We are further down that track. So, yes in terms of the curve of the epidemic and the curve of the cases, it will crest a little bit earlier. But the, the actual structure of that crest and the structure of the curve on how rapidly cases rise where they peak is actually relatively little, little affected by how many cases they are 
when we are starting to making these policy switches. So I think people are over over interpreting the the importance of that of of those cases. They are important. They will make a difference, but they do not make a categorically different prediction. Okay. Ivo, one of the big disparities, obviously the biggest disparity um, between these two models um, relates to fatality, but another notable one is the disparity of the R0 number um, that they used to make the models. Could you give us a quick explanation, if it's possible, of what an R0 number is um, and also what effect that had on the models? Okay, so the R0 number is basically the, 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 rep, the reproductive number at which the virus would spread in an optimal setting. So that's kind of the maximum rate of spread that a virus can have. So if the virus would go through the community with no restrictions whatsoever and can, can find as many people as it can, that's the rate at which it would spread. Okay. What it is not actually looked at very often and what was really quite ignored by everybody when in the discussion of those two models is the R0 number in the Doherty model is actually higher than the R0 number in the Hyde model. Right. The Hyde model assumes an R0 of six. The Doherty model assumes an R0 of eight. But R0 is not actually the important variable here. Okay, because the virus doesn't transmit in an in a theoretical vacuum in a theoretical population that there, where there is absolutely no no controls or anything else in place. The virus transmits in a population that has changed. We do have contact traces. People do isolate. We do have social distancing. People have tremendously changed its way of of, of washing their hands. So. The only environment in which we probably find transmission that is somewhere nearing our north is probably inside a nuclear family when parents and children mingle with each other and, you know, when parents clear the snot on people's children's noses. That's probably where we get an our north type transmission within that one household. And that's also why we see now these big clusters where the virus just takes out an entire household. Because in that, in that setting, transmissibility is really, really high. But in the general population, we have changed behavior. Public, public health policies are different. So what is a lot more important and what a lot of models are based on is more what we call R effective. So that's the effective rate. So for their model, the Doherty team has developed the concept which they call transmission potential. Okay. Which is basically the predicted R effective. It's basically saying, rather than measuring what the virus actually, at what rate the virus actually spreads, the, the Doherty team has very carefully, with, with a lot of, lot, of in, lot, a lot of thought and input, tried to predict, based on the different settings of public health intervention, what is the probable rate of spread by the virus. And that's what the Doherty team calls the transmission potential. It's basically a predicted R effective. Okay. And that number is 3.6. In the context of ongoing basic public health intervention like social distancing, hygiene, et cetera, and ongoing basic test, 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 street, isolate, and quarantine contact tracing systems. Okay. So, so people tend to really forget that the R0 in Doherty is actually higher 
Right, yeah. indeed. The difference really is, is that, that Doherty adjusts that number, the Doherty model adjusts that number to the reality of what's going on in Australia at the moment, while in the Hyde model, the R effective is just being taken as how the virus spreads through the population. In a, in a vacuum or in a theoretical vacuum. Yeah. Okay. So this is this sort of raises an interesting problem when you know as the conversation changes, as I hope it will, from the the aim being no new cases to being an eighty percent model, even the number or a seventy percent model, even the number seventy percent or eighty percent, of course, is dependent on what you count, isn't it? Whether it's population, whether it's eligible population, how do we how do we find a way to give people clarity about what those numbers mean? when you're kind of confronted with these quite complex scenarios and complex calculations that are going on in the background? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I think when, you, when you're when looking at different numbers and different predictions is, is, is always to look at what, as we just discussed, is what assumptions go into the models because that will tell you how realistic the predictions are. And, that, and, and, and so you really, really have to look at first what goes into it before you look what comes out. But yes, it's important to communicate what comes out. And I think the, the, the real challenge here in a more broader, more philosophical sense is really a, is how do we communicate risk? Because all these are risk calculations and all are calculations of how do we balance different types of risks. And of course. And that is, you know, really where the challenge comes in. Uh, there are obviously ways to communicate uh, these numbers better. You know, we have come up with recently with an example of, of, of uh, that I found useful because I'm a fireman, I'm, a, I'm in the CFA. So I found it very useful to try to tell my colleagues in the CFA that what we're really trying to do here is we're trying to prevent a big bushfire sweeping through the, through the country that just takes everything out and burns, burns the forest to a crisp here and, and, and kills lots of people. What we're trying to do is we're trying to manage that fire of the epidemic, that it creates a very cold, slow burn that slowly goes through the population. It will go through the population like a backburn, and it will take out some of that, 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 that material that can burn. But it has to be done in a way that we don't have an, an uncontrolled intensity that goes through. And we can do that safely because basically what we're doing with vaccination is like we're, we're taking trees out of the forest that can't burn. And then the fire can only go slowly through and take out those, 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 those ones that are left that are susceptible. So if we take 70% of, of, of trees out of a forest that can't burn, 70%, then the fire can't move fast because it can only kind of hop from one of those trees to the next one. And the more we take out, the less that fires can sweep through the, through, the, through the forest. So I think on one hand, we can use pictures like that to explain things easier in, in terms that people can understand more with their reality of, of, of what they are used to than just bounding around numbers that sound big and scary. And I think that's part of the challenge that we do also, we tend to we tend to focus on headline numbers. We we, uh, we try to like we have like to have simple numbers. Eighty percent re re relates to five thousand deaths, and 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 yeah. that's a real really really big simplification. And I think it is useful to try to take the time to be a little bit more differentiated. What it is, 
And again, very importantly, report what we actually do. You know, because I think there was very little reporting in the context of that model that predicted that big 25,000 or more deaths. Because basically, it wasn't necessarily made clear that what the model, what the model models is going at 70% from complete control to no control whatsoever. Yeah. And, and, and so, so that then, if that is not reported at the same time as those numbers, then it gives a completely wrong impression of what actually has been modelled. Yeah, I agree. I hope um, I, as a as a past math, mathematician student or a past math student, um, I actually think that one of the great things about the pandemic has shown um, what what the magic of numbers can do, the power of them, the power of them to kind of be wizard like um, and magical, and the power of them to explain as well. So I agree. Is there a way that we can report numbers? better given the given the pressures of a news cycle if you've got you know what's one thing you would like a reader or a listener um to to try and do when they're reading stories that involve these numbers um i think i think it's in terms of presenting them i think it's really important as i mentioned before to present the context and i think i think i would want the reader to be careful to to of numbers that are not being presented with context if you know, just be wary about people bounding big numbers around, you know, and and not giving uh, the context in which they come. And even with the Doherty modeling, which is and which is uh, you know a very very carefully done piece of work. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it's it's it gets the reality right. It may be not predicting the reality correctly, which it probably doesn't because it's still a model. It's a it's a scenario. It's not reality. But a lot of thought has gone into that model. But even when the model is, is, is published, uh, you know, the details behind it, a lot of the reporting just zooms in on these one numbers and well, how people have been interpreting the 70% and the 80% numbers has been extremely varied. And that's because people do not always give the context of what, was, what it actually says what happens at that time and how does that influence that and what is the step forward and that's why you know that is that that impression came in that it was freedom day and i think there is a a bit of an a, an assumption also in the population now that at 80 percent we suddenly will be completely free and that is not at all neither what the model says nor what is going to happen and you know and so so that's the main thing I think for people to be just wary and not to jump up and down too much, but actually look at the context and, and do that. Also, just to understand, you know, that models, not all models are correct. Some models are wrong because if you put the wrong inputs into a model or you you make a make a make a mistake in your maths, then the <laughs> the models can be can be can be wrong. But models do present different facets of reality and and their, their prediction. And, and so people need to understand that models can diverge in the best effort that modelers do because people have make different assumptions, they put different processes in, they have different levels of complexity. And so I think people need to try to, to, to not overreact and not also not get too jump too up and down if two models do not entirely agree with each other. But again, coming back to actually looking what goes into them and the context of what they model. So it's not an easy solution. It takes a bit of time and effort to get your head around.
But uh, I think it's a worthwhile exercise to try to get one's head around. I think also for people who are not modelers, it's actually interesting to find out what thought and how much thought goes into some of these models. Thanks so much um, for the insight. I find models absolutely fascinating and I hope everybody else will take from this that they should go and gaze at them more often. Yes, <laughs> yes. If, if you are interested in the models, almost all these models, most of the models, they do actually release uh, the, the data be, or the, some of the details behind it. Like the Doherty model, you can actually download the from the Doherty website the the model or the paper that was based on the Hyde model is available as a preprint. Go and take look that look look at them. Download them if you're interested, and you'll find some very interesting things to get your teeth into and read into. Some are more accessible than others, but uh, it's definitely worthwhile having a dig. Evo, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks so much um, for your knowledge and expertise in this field. Thank you very much. It was a it was a real pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly, our online subscription-based deep dive into the biggest issues. You can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link that you'll also find in the description. And remember... If you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton. Today's interview was hosted by Gail McCollum, and our executive producer is Catherine Roberts. Thank you. Thank you.